today on Understanding Immigration 287G. It's not really a waste when you consider that it proved that the program is not that expensive. It's very cost effective. And again, it's, you know, why would ICE want to make a program very expensive? You know, no city or jurisdiction would sign up for that. The reason that it's, you know, so opposed and so demonized is because it's a force multiplier for ICE. It streamlines the process so that removals can happen in a more timely manner. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. This is Matthew Tragesser, and I'm joined as always by Preston Hennikins from our lobbying team and Spencer Rayleigh from my research team. Today marks our 13th episode in this podcast series, and for those listening to us for the first time, we discuss a wide range of important and high-profile topics in the immigration debate. As we mentioned in the previous episode, we'll be slightly changing the format of these episodes. Uh, we'll first start off by discussing some important immigration news headlines from the week, and then we'll dive into our main topic of the day. Uh, but before we begin this entire episode, we want to extend a major thank you to everyone who took our recent podcast survey and want to give out a shout out to Donna from Arizona, David from California, Susan from California, and Roy from Florida, and pretty much anyone else who gave us such useful feedback. We really appreciate it, and we'll be using it in this episode and the uh, ensuing episodes. So our topic today is the 287G program, and we'll be discussing what it is, its history, and how it's playing a major role in immigration enforcement nationwide. But before we examine this program, let's all briefly discuss some recent immigration news headlines. Um, you know, we had the president decide to punt DACA until after the 2020 election. We had numerous states sue the Trump administration's order barring illegal aliens from the census apportionment count. And we also had the Supreme Court rule that the Department of Defense could use funds uh, for the border wall. So let's all go around and just talk about these headlines briefly. You know, Spencer, I want to start off with you. Did any of these stories surprise you at first glance? Surprising, yeah. Honestly, uh, I was surprised to see the Supreme Court uphold or to rule that Department of Defense funds could be used for the border wall. I mean, based on a lot of decisions we've seen and uh, the opinions of Chief Justice John Roberts recently, I expected that to to go the other way. So it was a pleasant surprise, and uh, again, it was ruling on whether or not funds could be used from the Department of Defense to build the border wall, not necessarily whether or not the border wall could be built. And this is kind of in conjunction to another decision back in June that ruled that there was not, you know, a significant environmental impact to stop construction of the border wall as well. There are going to be more challenges to this for sure in the future. I mean, as even a couple of the, the, the plaintiffs trying to stop the border wall said that, you know, they're going to try other ways to stop Trump's xenophobic border wall. So it wasn't even about the issue at hand, which was using Department of Defense funds. It was about trying to find some kind of angle to stop the border wall. And, and they failed at this point, And that's great. But we'll see how that goes in the future. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great that they could get more funding. You know, this has obviously been a huge priority for the administration to get that wall built. They're planning to build, you know, 450 miles by the end of the year, and they need a lot of funding. And, you know, Congress has really stymied them over the course of Trump's presidency. So I think it's a huge win for Trump. I agree. It was surprising. You know, I, I think that this will really pay dividends for the administration, but also the country in the long term. Um, you know, person, I, I want to ask you, you know, from all these, from the three stories I briefly mentioned, what is the biggest takeaway that you felt from each story? You know, just in a sentence or two, 
Um, I know it's these are you know pretty complex, but you know, what should our audience know about each of these stories briefly? The main takeaway. Yeah, the you know the main takeaway from the DACA extension is that the administration is clearly still interested in rescinding it in some way, uh, even though they they face a defeat at the Supreme Court, but not because of their decision to end DACA, but because they went about it in such a sloppy way by not following the Administrative Procedures Act. So what they're doing with this is pretty much covering their tracks legally to make sure that when and if they decide to rescind DACA again, it'll be decided on the actual merits of the case and not whether or not they followed uh, the APA. Second, with the census story, this is actually something um, that a lot of immigration reform advocates are are kind of scratching their heads as to why this wasn't announced in January 2017. Um, this has a much bigger impact on the actual outcome of the census more than their initial goal, which uh, which everyone might remember, was um, the citizenship question on the census. That really doesn't. That's kind of just for information purposes. That's not really going to change what the census does, which is allocate money to the states and it decides how many congressmen and women are apportioned to each state. And so this decision to to keep the number of illegal aliens out of that count is actually it has a much larger impact than the citizenship question. So um, it's just kind of confusing why they waited until uh, July 2020 to announce this and why they didn't do this in um you know, January 2017. And then for the, um, I, I agree with, with all the points that Spencer made about the um, Supreme Court upholding the construction of the border wall. It was a surprise, but uh, a welcome surprise and, and certainly a victory for the Trump administration. All right. All right. Great stuff. So let's dive into the meat of our segment, uh, the 287G program. Spencer, let me start off with you again. What exactly is this program and how did it originate? And how are cities and localities using this nationwide? Yeah, thanks, Matthew. Uh, the 287G program comes from a section of the Federal Immigration and Nationality Act, or the INA. And it allows state and local law enforcement agencies to enter into a formal cooperation agreement with ICE that uh, deputizes some of their officers as uh, federal immigration officers. In, in other words, basically, the federal government... Uh, delegates some of its authority to deputized state and local officials. And these officials, these these uh, sheriff's officers, whoever they are that enter into these agreements, they uh, go through uh, a very rigorous four-week, a minimum four-week training from ICE that to ensure that the deputies are well-versed in all the rules and regulations that go along with the program. And by doing that, they have access to ICE databases, they can start removal processes, and essentially have a really uh, seamless communication line with ICE so that there's not this big disconnect between uh, apprehending, you know, someone that uh, local law enforcement, you know, may or may not know is illegal, but then all the paperwork, all the process has to be done by ICE, essentially kind of, you know, expanding it out. So it streamlines the process so that removals can happen in a more timely manner. Another important point on this is it's an optional program that localities can participate in, but, and I feel like I need to stress this, even though it's optional, it does not in any way mean that if a locality doesn't want to participate in the 287G program, 
that they can forego cooperation and protect illegal aliens. You know, sanctuary cities are unlawful because they inhibit federal law enforcement from enforcing federal law. Uh, so just because uh, a locality isn't 287G doesn't mean that they, you know, can engage in protecting uh, lawbreakers. In 2018, the federal government allocated $24 million towards this program. And just like what happens <laughs> when it, as often happens when whenever something is passed that mass immigration advocates don't like, they suddenly become extremely fiscal conservatives and complain that the program's cost is prohibitive. And honestly, that's just silly in this case. The costs of the program are a minute fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1% of the federal government's budget. And since it streamlines the program, it actually saves the federal government a lot of money over the long term. And it also helps save... Uh, localities money because they can go ahead and start the process of removing an illegal alien which means that they spend less time in their local facilities and save the city some money. Overall there are approximately 146 counties, cities, uh, and other localities in 10 different states that are taking part of this program and while that may not seem like a lot it has led to uh, nearly half a million uh, illegal aliens being deported as a result of this program since 2006 so it's been highly effective and it's something that it would certainly uh, be effective, and it would be great to see more cities take part in over time. Right. That was a great rundown there. But let me ask you, Preston, you know, it seems like this program is not only effective, as Spencer said it was, it's really cost-effective. It, you know, increases the bandwidth of ICE, essentially, by deputizing these local law enforcement officers. But why is there so much opposition to the program? I mean, you know, you think something that enhances public safety up, holds a rule of law would be supported, but it's not. And, you know, can Congress or the administration do anything to make it, I guess, more mandated nationwide? So the reason that it's, you know, so opposed and so demonized is because of exactly uh, the point that uh, both you and Spencer brought up, which is that it's a force multiplier for ICE. And people, obviously, who support allowing, you know, illegal aliens into the country do not like ICE and they do not like the idea of the 287G program expanding their reach and um, expanding their ability to, you know, arrest, detain and expel uh, illegal aliens from the country. So that is essentially the number one reason why people oppose it. But of course there, you know, there are, they justify it by saying things like, it erodes the trust between local authorities and uh, immigrants, which it, there's really no evidence of that whatsoever. And I think a lot of people forget, too, that the 287G program is very small in actual scope, um, where a department, you know, a sheriff's department or a county, county police department will go into this agreement with ICE, but that doesn't mean that with the, you know, click of a pen that all of these people can now act as immigration agents. What ends up happening is that one of these officers, one of these sheriff's deputies has that power and everyone else in the department um, doesn't really touch it and, do and legally can't really do anything with it. So if you're telling me that people in an entire community are suddenly going to turn their backs on their local police because one sheriff's deputy now has deputized immigration power. That's that's pretty silly, and I don't think has any basis in reality. But it's kind of an interesting program in that there's really not too much that Congress has really done to either expand it or 
um, shrink it. You know, it's it's largely one of these things that is that is so in the weeds that people almost forget it exists. You know, there's a lot of you know it's been targeted by by people that want to to defund ICE and these kinds of things. You know, that would obviously affect 287G, but no one's ever really come out with a bill that says, "Oh my God, we have to get rid of this you know terrible program," um, because it, it it does largely fly under the radar, um, and it really only became popular when when President Trump issued an executive order in 2017 that tried to expand it um, and didn't really get too terribly far with it. Under under Trump, there have certainly been localities and, and counties and such that have entered into 287G agreements, but a lot of cities and localities have also pulled out of their existing agreements. So, um, you know, we haven't seen this huge you know, swell of of agreements that have been signed since he took office, um, and so it's it's just one of these things that it's up to the individual counties to to enter into with ICE if they if they think that they and their leadership and their community think they have a problem with this and they want a bigger presence with immigration enforcement, um, especially because ICE is so is spread so thin. It's one of those things that they really have to kind of go out on their own and seek. And let me just stress one of those points you made there about whether or not this would cause illegal aliens, lawful migrants, anyone like that, to, whether it would erode their trust in the the local police force. That that argument has never made any sense. It's never been. Uh, it's every study they've done on it hasn't hasn't borne any kind of result to suggest that. No, no honest study anyway. And in reality, any time an illegal immigrant is picked up by police, they're supposed to notify ICE. So if they're following the law, that's going to happen anyway. The only difference is essentially the efficiency of that process. So it logically does not make any sense that this program in particular would cause illegal aliens to not call the police if, they're, if they witnessed a crime or uh, make them any more or less likely to... Uh, contact law enforcement or any any kind of first responder out of fear of you know essentially their unlawful status equally it makes no sense that it would create fear among lawful migrants because they have no reason to fear the you know to to fear police in the first place they've they've got their status and again this is not something that essentially says now any locality that participates in the 287g program will cooperate with ICE. It essentially just says that they can go ahead and start that process so it's not drawn out and more expensive and honestly less fair to the migrant themselves. You know, there's a massive backlog of immigration cases in the United States right now, and a big part of that is because this process is so slow. So anything we can do to speed that process up is not only helpful to the United States and preserving our interests, but it's also more, more fair to the migrants who would otherwise spend, you know, a long time in detention or receive a summons and know that that's coming. Mm -hmm. I think I also want to talk about there's this popular myth, and I, I think you touched on this at the beginning of the episode, Spencer, that somehow this program is very costly and it costs counties or jurisdictions, you know, millions of dollars on taxpayer funding and in the media recently, there was an article about the Frederick County Sheriff's Department, which is right around D.C. for our listeners out there. And I've actually been up to that Sheriff's Department, and I've met with uh, Sheriff Chuck Jenkins there. But the article revealed that the program was only costing the county $22,000 in taxpayer money a year, whereas resident, residents of the county were saying 
you know what this program is costing the county millions it's you know the sheriff's department is profiting off of it and ironically the audit itself on the sheriff's department costs taxpayers twenty thousand dollars to conduct so basically one year <laughs> 7g program would cost so i mean complete waste of money but i guess it's not really a waste when you consider that it proved that the program is not that expensive it's very cost effective and again, it's, you know, why would ICE want to make a program very expensive? You know, no city or jurisdiction would sign up for that. Yeah. And Matthew, just to kind of jump on that point, too, again, this goes back to really just the widespread kind of misconception of what 287G is. People think that it's this expensive program because when they're told about it, they think that every single sheriff's deputy or every single police officer in their county is having to do this training and having to get this, you know, these extra hours and stuff like that. When we know that's not the case, it's one, one or two police officers out of an entire department. And that's what is good about it is that it does keep the costs so low, even though you're getting so much back in that force expansion for ICE. And it's important to keep in mind that ICE pays for most of the training in these programs as well. And cities and counties can actually apply for something called the uh, State Criminal Alien Assistance Program Grant uh, that reimburses states and county, uh, counties for uh, the costs of housing, processing, transferring illegal aliens in their, uh, in their custody. So again, it makes very little... I, I would love to see the line item of anyone who tries to claim this costs counties hundreds of millions of dollars because there's just no logic to that. I can see sometimes there's some uh, type of statistical trickery that mass immigration lobbyists like to engage in is to only look at the cost of a program and not the benefit, not the reimbursement, anything like that. But even if you consider that, there are very few instances where this is going to get very expensive. And like I said earlier, the benefits that come to the state from taking part in this program end up far outweighing any kind of cost that any kind of small cost that goes along with it. Right. I think that's exactly what we're seeing with the growth of these programs. You know, I think Preston touched on this in a little bit, but they didn't really start expanding until Trump took office in 2017. And on his inauguration day in January, or on January 20th, 2017, there are only 36 participating members of this agreement. You know, this could be, the members could be cities or counties or what have you. And then as of July 1st, there are more than 140. So that's a 40% increase in just over three years. And again, it shows the usefulness of these agreements. Counties and cities are recognizing just the tremendous benefits it can bring them. And also, you know, I think it's also refreshing to see that, you know, these are combating the sanctuary jurisdictions as they continue to spread throughout the country. And I know we touched about sanctuary jurisdictions in the previous episode, but they're essentially regions that don't cooperate with federal immigration authorities on illegal aliens in their areas. So, you know, I think this is a program that's going to keep on expanding. And, you know, they serve as a way to kind of counterpunch these sanctuary cities that keep on expanding as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it would Again, just for the reasons we mentioned, it would be great not just for the interests of the federal government, but also for these counties to be able to streamline this process as much as possible. However, I think as often happens with anything that Trump discusses, there's always going to be a a delegation. There's always going to be the mass immigration lobby that is just going to assume it's evil. They're going to have to oppose it, and they're going to have to try to rally any counties or cities that... uh, you know, would, would typically skew to their side on some of these issues to also 
not only condemn it, but to not take part in it. So it's important for voters to understand the value of these programs and how it not only makes their cities more efficient, it makes them safer, and it, in many cases, puts money back into the taxpayers' pockets. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to recognize that there's only about 6,000 deportation officers nationwide for ICE. And if you consider the large amount of illegal aliens in our country, you know, more, more than 14 million, I mean, that's a large number of people to remove from the country. And so they need as much help as possible. Not to say that every single person will get uh, immediately deported. But, you know, again, it's ICE does not have the bandwidth to do this on their own. They, they need help from at all different levels. Yeah. And, and the opposition understands this. It's one of the reasons they fight it so hard is because their goal is for the illegal alien population in the United States to keep growing, you know, to not only bring them into the states, but to also, you know, sign them up for welfare benefits. And as we're seeing in many states, get them some sort of vote. So I think uh, one of the things that should spur counties and sheriffs and police agencies that care about this issue to go ahead and sign on if they're considering it is because the opposition realizes how effective this is that should be all the evidence you need (laughs) Mm -hmm. all right well that's all the time we have today we hope that all of you have enjoyed today's episode in the new format and perhaps learned something new about uh, trending immigration news stories and also the 287g program as a reminder we'll be releasing a new episode every other monday so please stay tuned for those our episodes are available on most platforms including spotify apple Podcasts, and google podcasts You can also visit our website to access them at fairus.org and also on our Twitter feed at Fair Immigration. Uh, So please spread the word. Uh, We hope each and every one of you are continuing to stay safe and sound in these turbulent times. Um, But until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by Fair.